everybody um, to the fourth, the last uh, lesson in, in the series that we're doing on Becoming Grace, uh, and I hope it's been a blessing. I hope that you have enjoyed it if we, as we have talked about what it looks like maybe, what it, what it might do to us and for us to think about this idea of becoming God's grace to our world, to our generation, to everything uh, that's going on around us. And of course, we're Jesus followers, and so we take our cues from Jesus. And it just seems like when you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus paid a lot of attention to people that others had forgotten or seemed to want to forget. You know, you read through the Gospels, the, the life of Jesus Christ, and it seemed like he was always paying attention to, to sinners, to tax collectors, to the blind, you know, those that were disabled and kind of pushed to the margins of society, uh, to the lepers, those that had leprosy back in the day that they thought was majorly contagious. And, and then, you know, there was, of course, the people that just blatant and, and, and embarrassing uh, moments and circumstances, the woman that was caught in adultery, another person caught living, you know, maybe a less than Christian life, if we can be kind and say it that way. But persons and circumstances that other people seem to just run away from, it seemed like Jesus just steadily and calmly walked right towards them, never turned his back, never turned away. I mean, you know, and not just the people, but again, the circumstances, even down to the way that he died. And to us, you know, we, Jesus has so glorified death on a cross that we see it as something noble. But when he was here in the flesh, it was something very shame-filled. It was something very, uh, you know, dishonorable. And, and it seems like Jesus just over and over and over again went to the worst of our society, went to the lowest of our, what we would call, what some would call the worst worst of our society, the lowest of society. He took the worst and the lowest from people. And it seems like he just, he, he, he only returned forgiveness. Like that's all he seemed to do with all of the hatred and everything that was thrown at him. And honestly, it only makes sense if it wasn't really something that he was just trying to do. Like it was, you know, well, I need to be better at this. I need to kind of make sure I do this so other people can see. It wasn't anything like that. It wasn't just a task to him. It seemed to just be who he was. It came out of who he was. It was his character. It was his nature. It was the essence of everything that we know about Jesus. And so, you know, if we, you know, and, and we kind of know this, right? If we are looking to just do a good thing every once in a while, but it's not really who we are, then we can actually get to the place where we can kind of pick and choose the good that we do, can't we? Right? Like, let me, let me hurry up and do a good deed in the morning, and then if I see something later on in the day, well, I've already done my good deed for the day. It's just something that we're trying to do, but maybe it's not really exactly who we are. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You see something that needs to be done, and it's just like, man, I don't know if I could do that. You need, you know, you see something that maybe even needs to be said. I don't know if I can say that. That seems a little bit too uh, inconvenient. Uh, you know, I'm busy. Uh, that seems a little bit too uncomfortable, too touchy. I don't know if I want to go there. That might cost me something if I get involved in that. It might take something from me to maybe try and, and fix that situation, right? And we're just like, no, I've already done my good deed for the day, because there are just some things that seem like they're too much. And like, you know, okay, not going so deep, maybe a little bit on the lighter level. Parents know this. Any parents ever gone into the stinky diaper competition? Whereupon your kid has a diaper that they have filled up. And you pretend like you don't smell a thing. Because the first one to smell it is the one that has to fix it. And so we sit there, nose twitching, with a smile on our face, don't want to admit that we smell anything at all because we don't want to be the one that has to get up and take care of the situation. Come on, be honest in church. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Only me and Valerie, really. You guys are lying. We're going to have an altar call. You can ask God to forgive you of your lies here in just a moment. But whoever smells it first has to clean it up. And so we would rather sit and smell someone else's stink than get up and take care of the situation, right? Even though we have the ability to step into the situation and make it better, we would rather sit and endure. What is that in us? What is that about us? And 
You know, there's just some things that just seem beneath us or that we don't want to hassle with at different times in life. I was reminded as I was putting my notes together um, years ago on, I think it was on Discovery Channel, a guy named Mike Rowe had a show called Dirty Jobs. Anybody ever heard of Mike Rowe's Dirty Jobs? Some of these dirty jobs. There is somebody in San Francisco who is a San Francisco sewer inspector. And their concrete sewer system is in major need of repairs. But guess what? They can't shut it down to do their repairs. And so Mike Rowe and a camera crew, that poor cameraman, Mike Rowe and a camera crew went into the sewers with the San Francisco City Sewer Repairman as everything was still active and filmed him and documented this person having to patch the San Francisco City sewer system. No thank you. No thing. How about a snake wrangler? This is a real job. Mike Rowe went and found a snake wrangler. They have to collect water snakes, and they're trying to figure out if they're healthy or not, and the only way to do it is to collect these snakes, sometimes being bitten by these snakes, and then make these snakes vomit so they they can dig through their vomit and see if the snakes are healthy. Can you imagine if that was your job? Try putting that on a resume, right? Or a chicken sexer which is easily the most colorful title. Sounds like it should maybe even be a dance, but it's not. It's a job, and it is not nearly as fun as it sounds. Within 24 hours of baby chicks being born, they have to uh, determine the gender of those baby chicks by squeezing out all of their waste and then looking up the backside of the baby chicks to decide if it's a rooster or a chicken. How many of you wish you had that job? Like a lot of you, I know exactly what's going to happen. I, I should have told your bosses I was going to talk about this because you guys are going to go buy donuts and take them to work tomorrow morning after you hear all of these jobs. I know exactly what's going to happen. The one that we all kind of know about and make jokes about is kids, horse inseminators. Because things don't happen by magic. That's an actual job. How about shark suit tester? Somebody invents a new shark suit. Somebody's got to test it out. So this is an actual job. You go put on somebody's prototype of a shark-proof suit, jump in the ocean, they put blood and guts and chum up the water, and then you got to sit there and let all of the sharks come and start biting on you. Can you imagine if that was your job? Some things we just won't do. I will not do any one of those jobs unless I had to, and then I would, I guess, because... Chelsea's more scary than a bunch of sharks, so who knows? But we say, or sometimes maybe we don't say it out loud, we just think, I don't know if I can do that because I, that seems like it is beneath me. Has anybody, maybe you haven't ever said that phrase, but you've heard that phrase before. I don't know that I could do that because it is beneath me. Anybody ever heard? Come on, I'm not saying you said it. Anybody ever heard that? I can't do, again, only me and Valerie. That's the only two. Do y'all's arms work? Everybody lift your right arm. I just want to check. I'm just making sure. Ivan, your arm doesn't work. Uh, you can't point at your kid with your right arm and then say you can't raise it up. All right, you can put your arms down. I just wanted to make sure that everything worked. We think that is beneath me. In other words, what we are saying is I have been elevated to a status and if I do that, it's going to take me down a notch. My identity will suffer. My value, my worth as a person will suffer if I do that job, that task, that thing that is lower in status. And we focus on the deed and we focus on what it might say about us and what value it might give to us as if doing lowly deeds defines us with a less valuable identity. As if doing gross things or undesirable, undesirable things or even doing things for people who we might think are at a lower station in life, you know, makes us a lesser person by association. And really, we are worrying about this because we want people to think that we are more important than the status level that that job or that task requires someone to be to do. We want people to think we're important. We want an ego boost. We want to know that our contribution matters, that we are making a difference, that if I do that, I won't be able to go home and be proud of what I do. And if I'm going to do something that's going to cost me, if I'm going to do something that's uncomfortable, then can I at least get a camera crew to take a picture of me doing it 
so I can put my selfie on Facebook to let everybody know just how valuable I am. We struggle with this, don't we? We do. We all have egos. We all have pride. And Jesus comes along and he flips everything upside down. And he takes our idea of great being associated with great things and high and elevated being associated with high and elevated things, and he turns it upside down. And in Jesus, we see that the greater you are, the lower you are willing to stoop. That's what Jesus showed us. At Jesus-level greatness, you actually go the lowest. At Jesus-level greatness, you touch the least touchable. At Jesus-level greatness, you love the least lovable. You're kind to the most undeserving when you are at Jesus' level of great. Does anybody in the room know what I am talking about from personal experience? That thank God he goes to the lowest and to the most undeserving because that was us. And we know this about Jesus, not because of a story in the Bible, but because of our story. This is why we love him so much. And this is why we think Jesus is so incredible. And this is why we give our lives and our allegiance to Jesus. It's why we sing about his name. It's why we sing the song, No Wonder We Call Him Savior. And we're going to sing that today, actually, at the end of our service. No wonder we call him Savior. It's no wonder that we do because he came low for us. And we know this because we know we and I know me. And I know where Jesus found me. Thank God he reaches low. Amen. So with Jesus, he kind of gives us this new paradigm that to be great, you have to leverage what you have for those who have not. Jesus-level greatness causes you to leverage what you have for those who have not. No matter what it is, no matter how insignificant it seems, if you will give it for the benefit of somebody else, you can be great by Jesus's definition of great. And so there is kind of this correlation between the the high or the low level jobs or tasks or situations that we will tackle, but the correlation isn't like we always think it is. It's not high job equals high recognition. It is low reaching equals the greatest in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The greatest is willing to stoop. The lowest, the strongest proves their strength by what they do for the weakest. The loveliest show their beauty when they love the unloved with Jesus. Isn't it so beautiful what Jesus has given all of us to follow. And so we've been talking for a few weeks now about becoming grace, and and we changed the church name, and we had a big celebration. And last week, we looked at our place in history as the church and how God is for us, and God has ordained us, and we are the stewards of of God's grace for our time. And and then in week one, we talked about seeing the things around us that are broken with with compassion and, and allowing our hearts to be broken for what is broken within our reach. But honestly, Until we get this principle that we're talking about today, what good is seeing things that are broken around us if we are not willing to do anything about the broken things that are around us? What good is it to know that there is a need in our community if we're not willing to step into that need and be what is needed? What good is it to see a relationship that needs healing and forgiveness if we're not willing to sacrifice ourselves, to lay down our pride and our ego in order to patch that relationship up and give the forgiveness and the healing that is so desperately needed? What's the point of seeing it all? There is none. Broken things are uncomfortable. Broken circumstances and relationships, they are not comfortable. To fix broken things, it is going to cost us something. To fix the broken things around us and to become Jesus level great, it is going to cost us our time and it's going to cost us energy and it's going to take conversation. And for some of us, those three things right there make us want to close our eyes to what is needed. Pretend like we don't smell anything and just go on. Keep doing what we've always done because after all, you know, I'm saved, right? Aren't we? We're saved, aren't we? Well, we're already saved, aren't we? Aren't we? What's the point of being saved and left on this earth if we are not bringing Jesus' saving message to those who still need us. So Jesus saves us. Jesus changes us. 
But who gets to decide what the changed us looks like? We are made to be different. But who gets to decide what different is supposed to be? I don't think we get to just put on the Jesus costume without playing the part. I think we have to do what Jesus did. And so this idea right here that we're talking about today, that greatness always gives, that love always loves, that grace exists only to be given to those who need it the most. This has to do with what we become. This has to be what we become. It can't just be that we check good deeds off of a checklist somewhere. We must be fundamentally transformed into the image of Jesus Christ if we are going to change our world. We cannot, it is not enough to wake up in the morning and find one good thing to do. We have to be willing to wake up in the morning and say, Jesus, where do you need me to go today? What do you need me to say today? What is broken in my world that nobody else will touch, nobody else will fix, nobody else will step in and let themselves be the healing for? You know, I got to meditate. I was thinking about this as I was putting my notes together. I got to meditating on, on the, the revelation of God in Christ a while. It's been a while ago now, several months ago now. I was thinking about this and, and the revelation, the understanding of who Jesus was. And when you think about it, just hold on for a second. I'm going to teach for a few minutes, all right? So y'all just hang on. When you think about it, the Jews, when Jesus came on the scene, the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah because they did not want their God to be what Jesus was showing him to be like. When Jesus came with mercy and love and forgiveness, they were like, no, that is not what we want. We are under Roman oppression and we are sick of it. We want a revolt against Rome. We want someone that's going to kick off the Roman boot from off of our neck and put their own boot on Rome's necks. We, we want our day of vengeance against our oppressors. And then Jesus comes on the scene preaching hope and forgiveness for Jews and for their oppressors. And the Jews said, no, we don't want that. And we talked last week about Peter's revelation and his confession about the identity of Jesus when he told Jesus, you know, Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Messiah. You're the one that we've been waiting for. You're the one that's supposed to come and set us free. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, this understanding of who I am, when you realize that I am the son of the living God, this is going to be the foundational truth of my movement. My identity is the foundational truth of my movement. But why? Why that truth? Why that deal? Why the revelation of God in Christ? As John said, no one has ever seen God, but the only begotten Son, he has revealed him to us. Why is that the thing that is going to be the foundation of the Jesus movement? Because it's a, a great and powerful theological concept, and it is. Don't get me wrong. If it seems like I am demeaning the revelation of God in Christ, then it's my fault I'm not communicating it well. But just go with me for a second. Is it because, is that the foundation of the Jesus movement because it's this great and deep theological concept? I don't, I don't think it is. Is this the, the, the foundation of the Jesus movement because it's a deep and sacramental and holy religious statement? It is that, but I don't think that's why that is the pivotal, the foundational truth of the Jesus Was it supposed to be the secret handshake for the true church? I don't think that was it. I think that the revelation, the understanding of God in Christ, that he was more than just a man, I think that became the foundation for the Jesus movement because it was critical for us to understand him and to see him as the unveiling of the true heart and the character of God, our creator, toward us. See, here's the thing. Religion had broken down and devolved into this guilt management system where all it was about was just saying you're sorry for the last thing you had done and then to go on and keep doing those things, but at least you had a system to go and say you're sorry for them. And there was no change. And more than that, there was no worship of the God to the point where they became like the God they worshiped because people don't become what they fear. People become what they worship. You know this is true because your kids have posters all over their room. Because your kids out there practicing three-pointers like Steph Curry, people become what they worship. But they had lost their worship 
of the creator God. And so Jesus came as the ultimate revelation of the heart of our father towards sinful humanity. And in Jesus Christ, we can hear the call of God saying, this is what I look like. This is who I am. And our God came low in Jesus Christ and he allowed himself to be rejected. He allowed himself to be spit upon and cursed and mocked. And eventually he allowed himself to be nailed to a tree because God loves us. Because God is not willing that any of us should have perished or lived life in a way that he never intended for us to live. But God wanted us to know, I love you and I want to save you and change you and restore you to what I meant for you to be. But we couldn't see it. Humanity couldn't see it. The very people of God had lost their way. And in fact, the New Testament says of them over and over and over and over again that they were blind to who he was. Because see, if Jesus is just a philosopher, and this is why it's the foundational truth of the Jesus movement, because if Jesus is just a philosopher, if Jesus is just a good teacher than his opinions and his ideas about God are no more valid than anybody else's. But if Jesus is the image of the invisible God, if Jesus is the unveiling of the creator, if in Jesus's words, when we see him, we have seen the father, then we can know, we can know, not hope, not think, not plead for, we can know that God loves us and wants to bring us into relationship with him. That's what it's all about. The identity of Jesus Christ is foundational because it shows the heart of God for all of his creation. But the revelation of God in Christ was never meant to be a theological weapon. It was never meant to be a club to beat your opponents about the head and shoulders until they cry uncle to your understanding. The revelation of God in Christ was supposed to be the unveiling of hope and the display of mercy. The revelation of God in Christ was meant to turn our fear into worship that maybe I can go to my God and make things right. Maybe there is hope for redemption when I thought that I was too far gone. And so all of the Old Testament and the New Testament put this picture, this whole picture of Christ together, that he was more than just a man. He was Jehovah's servant of Isaiah. He was the, the, the arm of the Lord. He was the word that goes out from God and does not return void. He was the self-expressing word of Yahweh in creation. And he became human to show God's heart toward us. But we don't need to know this so that we can be smarter than everybody else. We need to know this so that it will give hope to our hopeless hearts. We need to know this so that we can know what our God thinks of us and what he has done to prove his love for us and that we can come back. We can come back into relationship with him. That's the reason that Jesus' identity was the foundation of the Jesus movement, and we have received this revelation. I love the, the, the New Living Translation. I'm going to share a scripture with you. Peter, who made that confession. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. I, I love what he tells us in his letter, his first chapter of his letter, and down in verse 21. He tells us, through Christ, you have come to trust in God. Because you saw what your God was like in Jesus Christ, you can trust him. You don't need to run away anymore. You don't need to keep pushing him away anymore. You don't need to get your stuff together to go to him anymore. When you see me on the cross, you can trust that your God loves you. And Peter, who made the confession of who Jesus was, says, through him, you have come to trust in God and you've placed your faith and you're hoping God because he raised Christ from the dead. And then Peter ties it into what we're talking about today, this giving and this serving to others. And he says, you were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. Because you trusted him, you were willing to do what he told you to do. Because you trusted him and you believed that he loved you, you were willing to take that step of faith and trust what he was asking you to do and to give up and to be and to become in your life. 
And so now you must, and this is where we start to complicate things. Well, I know, I know, I must. I, I must go to church every single time, and you do need to go to church. I know, I know, I know. I must stop lying. You know, I can't get drunk, and I can't go do drugs. I know, I must, I must. That's not what he says next, although you shouldn't, you know, lie on people, shouldn't do drugs or go get drunk and all this kind of, I know, I must, I must not cheat, I must not steal, I must not covet my neighbor's donkey or his wife, I know, I must, I must. No, that's not what he says, because you trust in God, because you have been cleansed from your sins, now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters and love each other deeply with all of your heart because you have been given love when you did not deserve love. It's time to start loving someone else more than you love yourself because someone greater has stooped so low to love you and to love me. Now it is time for us, no matter the level we think ourselves, it is time for us to stoop low and to begin to love somebody else, to stop taking from other people, to stop... I didn't want to go here because I was worried about time. Do you know all sin basically is is taking from other people? Sin at its root is selfishness. Lying and cheating and stealing. It's all about I deserve that more than you deserve that. I want this more than I want to give you the commitment. You need to give me that. So I'm just going to take it from you. All sin works its way back to selfishness. But you can't be selfish and love somebody. And the early people in the Jesus movement knew if we can get everybody to love each other like Jesus loved us, we don't have to worry about the sin thing. It'll all go away because people become what they worship and we worship Jesus and he has loved us all the time, all the way, all the... And so we, as Jesus followers, lay down our lives for others. Not because it's a good work, but because it is the very nature of the God we worship. We do good for others, not because it's a task on a list, but because it was revealed to us as the core of who God is. And we worship that God and we become like him. But this is hard. It might be a lot simpler. There's fewer words. This is hard, a lot harder than the Old Testament to live out. We see Jesus surprising people with that time and again in his teaching. It's hard to do this, to love somebody always, to always prefer somebody else, to always do the thing that makes somebody else better, that makes their life better, that improves them, even at the expense of us. It's hard to do. And we're not the first Jesus followers to struggle with it. In fact, the earliest, the first Jesus followers struggled with this, and they didn't get it, and they had to be shown by Jesus himself on his last night with him before his death. There couldn't be a worse time for Jesus to go back and start teaching the basics all over again, but he had to, and Peter was there, and Peter should have known. He should have known that this is my Messiah, and that's you know the appearing of our God and, and Savior and the King that we've been waiting for, but he sure does seem to like people that we were taught not to. And it sure seems like he doesn't like the people you'd think he'd like the most. But Peter missed it. And all the rest of them missed it. And so Jesus had to show it. And John was there, called the favorite disciple. He was there with Peter and the rest. And Luke wasn't there, but Luke interviewed the other guys that were there. And Luke wrote it down for us. And this morning, we're going to look at John's account of it and, and Luke's account kind of mixed together. Their account of this last night when Jesus had to show his disciples, what it meant to be him, what it meant to be the Messiah, the living God in flesh. And it's striking to me for this because Jesus knows that it's about time for him to die. He knows about the cross and the coming suffering, and he knows that he's about to hand off his movement to these misfits. And while they're there on his last night, his last night there before his death, they all bring up this old argument again about who's going to be club president when Jesus starts up the kingdom. And this is the night of his, work, his arrest. And John tells us in John 13, 1, it was just before the Passover festival. And Jesus knew at the hour 
had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What a powerful statement. What an immense statement that is. And if you've ever had a loved one pass away, you know a little bit what this circumstance, this, this, this night is like. It's tense. And it's serious and it's grave and life is really being crystallized in those moments. And he goes on, John does, and he tells us that the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Judas. And Jesus is sitting there across the table from Judas. Even in his last hours, he has no peace from those that are trying to do him harm. And this is where Luke jumps in and we're going to switch over to Luke. But Luke tells us that this old argument pops up. Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Well, I think it's going to be me. Well, I think it might be Peter. You know, he made the great confession and walked on water. No, it's going to be John. He's the favorite. Nobody said it was going to be Bartholomew. Like, he just, nobody even knows who Bartholomew is. Like, they're just, they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus, Luke tells us, shuts it down. And he's like, guys, you still don't get it. You're supposed to be understanding something from who I am. And what I am doing, you're supposed to be understanding something and you're missing it. You guys all want to be the greatest because you think my kingdom is going to regard greatness like every other kingdom has regarded greatness. That it comes with power and wealth and status. And that's not how it is, guys. In fact, you hate the Romans. You don't like what they are doing to you. They take from you and they are your oppressors. And it's not going to be like that with you. And if there is anything in me that you are drawn to, then things have to be different. And then he gives them this example. And he says, in fact, we're all sitting around a table and we're having a meal. And let me ask you guys, when someone is having a meal at the table, who is greater? The one who's at the table or the one who serves? If you're having a meal, if you go to a restaurant and you're sitting down and the waiter comes, who is the most honored person in that circumstance? It's, it's you. The waiter is there to serve you. If your dollar bills didn't exist, the waiter would be digging through snake vomit. Like there's no other job for them. You are the honored guest. And then in Jesus' time, there were even other guests or other servants in the room. There were the servants that served at the table and then there were servants who had to wash the feet of those who came in from the outside. And Jesus is asking them, who has the status in this circumstance? The people at the table or the people around the table who are serving? To which all of us would have said, well, it's the people at the table. Now think about this, especially about the lowest servant in that pecking order. They wore sandals and not shoes. It was the desert. There was no pavement. It was dirty everywhere around. They sweated and showers were not readily available. There was no fast acting to nactin anywhere around. There was no baby powder to make. There was none of that stuff. There were not even any toenail clippers. Mm. People's toenails looked like curly fries from Jack in the Box. Smelled like cheese. Remember I talked about the room heating up and the smells coming? Think about that. And there was a guy. I wish Mike Rowe could have interviewed this guy. There was a guy whose job it was to wash the feet of the guests who came to the house. Not even just to fill the glasses and put the food on the table. And Jesus says, who is the one who's more important? Is it not the one at the table? And yet, Peter, you know, you made that confession about me, that I'm the Messiah, that I am the son of the living God. Nathaniel, you remember how I told you what you said when you weren't even around me. I did something supernatural. You guys remember when I raised Lazarus from the dead. You guys remember that, right? Yeah, we remember that. We were there. You guys remember when you were all in the boat that night going across the lake and it was getting kind of stormy and I came across the water and went raw, scared all you guys. You guys remember that? Yeah, we remember. We remember all of that. 
And he says, I am among you as one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. And then John tells us that he did something so fantastic, so extraordinary, because you know he wants to give them a picture, right? You know he wants to leave them with an example of what he's talking about. And if it was me, I would have got up and said, let me show you guys how you serve. Let me refill your water glass. Let me get you another bagel, you know, because they're Jewish. Let me, let me help you out with this. Let me get you an extra. Anybody need an extra napkin? You need to serve those around you, right? That's what I would have done. But John tells us he gets up from the meal and he takes off his outer clothing. Basically, in that move, he is putting on the uniform of a servant. That's what the servants wore. And now everybody in the room can see who the servant is. There's no question anymore about people's roles or identities within the room. The greatest in the room has suddenly become the servant, the lowest in the room. And he wrapped a towel around his waist. Why? Because servants only equip themselves with what they need to serve somebody else. And that's what he did. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. Jesus stood up from the table, and he didn't just go from high to middle. Jesus stooped as low as he could go. Jesus took the worst possible job in the room, and Jesus washed their feet. They're nasty, stinky, smelly, curly fried toenail feet. Jesus did. Now, maybe he gave him a pedicure just by a wave of his hand, you know. <laughs> part the water, I'm about to part the toenails. I mean, <laughs> he washed their feet. Now, Jesus, you're about to be arrested. Jesus, they're, they're, they're assembling the soldiers probably at this time. Don't you think, Jesus, there might be a better use of your time than washing their feet? Jesus, Judas is about to leave, and they're about to assemble because Judas is going to tell them where we are. They don't know yet, but they're about to find out where we are. Jesus, your life, the duration, the remainder of your life can be measured in minutes. Isn't there something else you should be doing right now? Jesus, it's go time. Like, can we go find you a blind person to heal? Like, maybe would you like to, you know, do another trick with the bread and the cup and this kind of, Jesus, there's something. Maybe give us another sermon or something. Jesus, aren't you sure that you shouldn't be forgiving someone's sins or doing some other thing that tells us how great and how awesome you are? Isn't there a better way for you to use your last few minutes on this earth with the people that you are about to leave your movement with? Can't you give them some last-minute instructions? And there, in the last moments of Jesus' ministry, in the last moments of his last night there before his death, when time is at a premium, Jesus stands up from the table and leaves the place of honor. And Jesus puts on himself the uniform of a slave and of a servant because he doesn't want anyone confused about who he is claiming to be. Because he wants them to understand something about what he's doing and how it is related to who he has become for their sake and for, oh, Jesus, help us to see it, help us to see it. He wants us to see who he has become for our sake. And he wraps a towel around his waist and he washes feet. And he's about to hand over his movement to these men. And in that moment, what Jesus is saying is, I don't think there's anything more important for these guys to remember about what I taught them. When they remember this night, I don't want them to remember a miracle. I don't want them to remember a 
sermon. I don't want them to remember a theological statement. When they close their eyes and they remember our last night here at this Last Supper, I want them to see me as their slave, washing their feet. And Jesus chose that to be the last memory they would have of his his ministry. That was the picture he chose. That was the picture. And John, we're down in verse 5, but in verse 3, John had said something so absolutely incredible. It blows my mind. In verse 3, John said, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Jesus knew that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus knows where he comes from. He knows where he's going. Jesus knows the glory and the fame. Jesus knows the kingdom and the defeat of evil. Jesus knows the resurrection and the life. And that night, in those final moments, the word become human. The image of the invisible God, the word, the Lord, the Messiah, King Jesus himself, who had walked on water and called a dead man from the grave, who had opened blinded eyes and forgiven given the sins of people that deserved it the least, at that moment, Jesus got up and he stopped serving himself. And instead, he began to serve those that were around him. But he didn't do it because it was a good thing for him to do. He did what he did because he was who he was. He was redefining what we think of greatness He was redefining what we think of when we think of the almighty God. He was giving us a new way of considering God. All the power of creation, all the power that carved out Yosemite Valley and made the oceans roar and put the moon in its orbit, all that that does was summed up in the picture of a servant. Jesus was redefining what I mean. I think a lot of times we think that Jesus did what he did in spite of who he was. But that's not it. Jesus did what he did because of who he was. Like when he found us. Like when he found us. That he didn't wrinkle his nose. That he didn't say ew and push us away. But that he got dirty. He reached down where we were. It's who he is. It's that kind of God he is. It is what his heart looks like. It is what his mind thinks about all the time. He can't get away from it. How much he loves you and he cares for you and he hopes for you and he believes in you and he wants to save you and forgive you and change you and give you a new future full of hope and life that you will never find without him. That's my God. That's my God. That's my God. When I look at Jesus Christ, I see my God coming low for me. When I look at Jesus, when we see him on a cross, we know how much our God loves us. Come on, can we worship him all over this room? That's my God. That's my Savior. That's my Jesus. That's my Jesus. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus. Nothing compares to this. The name of Jesus. What a powerful name it is. That it has reshaped my thoughts about God. It has caused me to turn my sin and my old way of living and to run to him because through Christ I have come to trust in God. What a wonderful name it is. The name of Jesus. The revelation of our God to humanity. Come on, one more time before we move on. Could you just lift your hands and just say his name? Come on all over this room. If you're a guest here this morning, I challenge you to Just to try this with us and see if you don't feel the presence of the risen Jesus in this moment. Come on, all over this room. Lift your hands. Close your eyes. Jesus. Jesus, we speak your name in worship. Jesus, we speak your name in adoration. Some have turned your name into a cuss word, Jesus. 
We love your name. We cherish your name. It's because of your name. It's because of who you are that we have been saved, that we have been forgiven. There was no credit for ourselves, Jesus. All of the glory goes to you. See, with God, serving is tied to identity, but it's not a lowly, demeaning identity. It is an exalted identity. It is the greatest identity that when we stoop the lowest, we are most like Jesus. When we give to the least, he said, it's like you have done it unto me. When we visit, when we pray for, when we provide for, it's when we're most like Jesus. You know who's going to find it the easiest to do the lowliest tasks among us? It's those who are convinced that we are who Jesus says we are. You know who's going to find it the easiest, the most enjoyable to wash someone's feet in our day and time, do the most unwanted task, pay the highest cost? It's those who understand the power of God that has been given to us, that, have, that understand the power of God that has been poured into us, the greatness that we have, the exaltedness that we have received in Christ, that we have been seated together with Christ in heavenly places. And so now we turn like Jesus turned to the lowest among us and we give. And when you know, when you know, when we understand just how fully God is with us, we may not change the world, but we'll change someone's world. When we know how completely God is with us and has made us great in Christ Jesus, we, not may, we may not end world hunger, but we can feed somebody's family. When we know how fully God is for us and what our God thinks of us, we may never wipe out depression or suicide, but God can use us to help someone discover the greatest reason to be alive. Because when you are made great with God, you stoop the lowest and serve the least among us. Because it's who he was. And it's because it's who he is asking us to become. And so we have a challenge as a church family. And those that are starting to follow Jesus with us, we have to answer or think about these things and answer some questions that who is God placed in our life? What situation, what relationship, what circumstance is waiting for someone like us to get up, to take on ourselves the form, the identity of a servant? What circumstance is not going to change? What relationship is not going to be healed unless we stand up and serve the circumstance and serve the relationship and pour out of our hearts into somebody else's empty Heart. What relationship will stay broken until you take off everything about you that says that you're too good? Until we get rid of everything that is on us that says we're too busy, we don't have the time, we're too committed somewhere else. What will stay broken until we equip what, ourselves with what we need to serve those who need it the most? Could be time could be finances. It could be your love. It could be your forgiveness. I don't know what it is. You know. You know the relationship. You're thinking about them right now. You can't get them off your mind. It breaks your heart. We asked that in week one. Who are you and what breaks your heart? The next question is, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to reach them? How can we become like Jesus to them? How do we get up and serve the low among us? Can we all stand this morning? We've got to get up from the table. We've got to get out of our comfort zone. We've got to give to those who have a need because we have been given so much. We don't have to worry about running out of anything because God has always promised to supply we don't have to worry about having our hearts broken again because we know the healer of broken hearts. We don't have to fear anything that will be done to us or done or said about us. We don't have to fear anymore because he is our protector and he is our shield. We don't have to worry about being rejected because we have been accepted by the only one, the, the, the one that counts the most, Jesus, our creator, our father. 
But he's called us. He's called us to go and to serve. And today we have opportunities, and we're going to come around the front together here in a moment. I'm going to invite everybody in just, just a few moments. You have an opportunity to come and, and to tell Jesus, I, I see you maybe in a way I've never seen you before. I, I think about you. I'm starting to think about you in ways I've never thought about you before. And would you help me to change my orientation, to change what I think about giving up myself to something or to, some, to someone else? Would you help me change? Would you help me to trust you enough that I would obey the truth? Would you help me trust you enough to confess my sins to you and believe that you're ready and that you're waiting and you're willing to forgive me of my sins? Here in this moment, he can forgive you. You can leave this place today being forgiven, and you know this because he's always stooping low. You don't need to fix it yourself. You can't. You've tried and you're back where you started, but he wants to forgive you today. For some of us, maybe it's time to commit to baptism. For some of us, it might be as simple of a next step as joining a small group, just beginning to fill our lives with more and more of Jesus, seeing him more and more so that we come to worship him. And as we worship him, we are changed to be like Jesus himself. I don't know what it is, but there is a step for you to take today. There is a step for you to take today. Everybody all over the room, could you bow your heads with me just for a moment? Close your eyes with me just for a moment. Come on, if you feel God pulling you into something, would you just raise your hand? When nobody's looking, it's just you and God. Try as much as you can to forget about the guy with the microphone and everything else happening. Come on, is God calling you? Come on, lift your hand up high. I see your hands. I see your hands. God is calling each and every one of us. God bless you. You can put your hands down this morning. I've asked them to sing this song that... We actually just sang last week, and I know we just sang it last week, but I just think it so perfectly captures what we're talking about today. No wonder we call him Savior. It all starts with seeing Jesus for who he is, learning to worship him for who he is. That's where change begins. And could we all come forward this morning and just worship together and sing together this song, No Wonder We Call Him Savior? Come on this morning. Could you come? Could you grab the hand of somebody close to you today? Can we go to the front together and see Jesus together today? Jesus, I'm home. 